Hi, and welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts, a different view on international justice with me, Stephanie van den Berg. And me, Janet Anderson. You must be here because you're interested in The Hague and justice. And maybe you want to hear some insights from us. We're journalists, we've got asymmetrical haircuts, and we've been working in this field for years and years. We'll be inviting mainly female guests who we'll also share our obsession with how and why justice happens for atrocity crimes. Today we've got Marika Dahone. She's a researcher at the Freie Universiteit, the VU, in Amsterdam. And she's been all over the Dutch media um, talking about the announcement that the Dutch are going to attempt to put four people, three Russians and one Ukrainian, on trial for shooting down MH17, which was a Malaysian airplane en route from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, which was shot down over Ukrainian territory, allegedly by pro-Russian separatists there. About 300 people died in the shooting and um, it was meant to have been downed allegedly by a Buck missile um, provided by the Russian army to Ukrainian separatists. Um, and the reason why it's uh, involved the Dutch is because it originated in Schiphol, the aeroplane, and uh, nearly 200 of the people on board were, were Dutch. And uh, after this crash, there was a joint investigative team, also known as the JIT. That we will or be in Dutch, the JIT. The JIT, which was set up by the Dutch and also the Australian, Malaysian and I think US authorities, uh, who all had nationals on the plane, to see, uh, to investigate the cause of the explosion and the crash and to see if people could be brought to justice for it. Okay, and we were quite lucky we managed to catch up with Marika by Skype just after the announcement that the Dutch authorities are planning to bring this material to trial. And just before, she was heading out at the door for a holiday. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi. Hi, Marika. Hello. We're talking to you during this week when uh, MH17's hit the news headlines because the joint investigative team based here in the Netherlands has uh, named uh, some, some suspects. So do you want to just go through with us saying what, what, where we are now? Um, yes, so last Wednesday uh, there was a big press conference and they've announced four suspects. Those are people that weren't necessarily involved in um, the actual decision to shoot down MH17, or at least that's what it seems to be. The, uh, the, the joint investigation team is not presenting their evidence yet, so we don't really know. We'll have to see, and they also say we're going to wait with uh, sharing that information until court. Uh, probably because they don't want to convey or show their um, prosecutorial strategy. So so what can we expect from a Dutch case um, if you look at the national courts, especially since the Russians have made it clear that they will not cooperate and you have three of the four now named suspects are Russian nationals. So, so how would that work in, in Dutch courts? Because um, it seems unlikely they'll show up. Internationally, um, trials in absentia are um, frowned upon. Um, how how would that work out here? 
Trials in absentia are frowned upon, but the European Court of Human Rights has also said that it's not necessarily in principle against uh, or violating of the rights to uh, a fair trial, uh, provided that there uh, are some procedural uh, aspects taken care of. So the most important thing here is that a suspect has the right to be to attend its trial and not there's no necessarily a duty uh, according to human rights law um, but the Netherlands need to actively make sure that these people know that they have a trial and that they're able to come if they would want to and uh, with all those announcements like we invite you to you know the 9th of March they're uh, doing that and also by saying announcing that they'll ask uh, Russia to um, provide the, the subpoena. I thought I saw somewhere that um, the joint investigative team had even reached out via social media to some of the uh, the suspects to say, "Oi, maybe you're interested in this too." <laughs> I mean, is that is that normal? I hadn't seen that. But so this is also that a judge later on, when the defense says uh, if they show up or when uh, also the judge by its own uh, office needs to consider whether fair trial rights haven't been violated. And so this is all so that the judge can say they know that the trial is there, they can come they choose not to be there. Now, in the Netherlands, so we have this option, but there's roughly three choices now for these um, uh, suspects. Um, they can either show up and participate in the trial. That's sort of the most normal situation that we all are familiar with. Um, they can also send a lawyer um, with a specific um, uh, a declaration that they represent them in court uh, and those lawyers then have all the rights all the defense rights that the suspect would also have and then the third option is of course to not show up at all and then it's an in absentia uh, ruling if they send a lawyer it's 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 like a normal case so i don't know what they're going to do because they said we're not going to come i can also imagine that during this year they think about Dutch law a little bit further and they consult with a Dutch criminal lawyer, a defense lawyer, and then might send a Dutch criminal defense lawyer and turn this all into a spectacle, into a show trial that, of course, we uh, are a little bit more familiar with in international criminal justice. And you were talking earlier when the JIT just came out that they seem to be kind of um, taunting the, the Russians to send lawyers and present their defense, or that you thought that maybe the Diet was presenting its case in a way where the Russians would be more inclined to send a lawyer? Well, the, the suspects, huh? in, 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 uh, yeah. formally Sorry. it would be, no, but there are Russians, but formally it's up to the defendants to the, themselves individually decide because it's their well, lives at stake. The Netherlands is prosecuting for murder and the maximum sentence to that is lifelong. And in the Netherlands, lifelong is seriously lifelong. So this is not an easy go. Obviously, we should also talk about uh, whether they would actually be detained or whether they would actually be behind bars, which is a separate uh, choice. But the Netherlands chooses to go for the highest possible uh, uh, claim, count, murder. And what they're thereby saying is, well, the defense might be saying that they made a mistake and that they wanted to shoot down a Ukrainian military aircraft and, and, and accidentally shoot down MH17. The legal case, if that would be presented, would be uh, if we're talking about an armed conflict, international armed conflict, if we talk about that these people there would have combatant privilege so that they would be allowed to shoot down a plane 
but then have the obligation to determine, to make a distinction between whether it's a military target or a civilian target. What the prosecution is now saying is, oh, but we are not going to prosecute in this manner. We're just going to say, Russia, you're denying that you're there. So therefore, you're not claiming that combatant privilege. You're not saying that you are actually allowed to shoot in an armed conflict. So what we're saying now, you were there. You don't have combatant privilege. You just shot down a plane. If you don't have combatant privilege, you cannot shoot down any plane. But the fact that they're going with murder and by saying maybe the suspects will claim that it is a mistake that they tried to shoot down a Ukrainian military plane, but they're invited to come to the, to Schiphol, they can raise that as a defense and, and, and then see what we do with that. There's varied criticism from the Russians and now the Malaysian prime minister that they don't give enough of the evidence what they base this uh, prosecution or the charges on. In international courts, you often have public indictments and an official arrest warrant, which lays out at least part of the foundation of why these people are charged with what they are or why uh, we're going to prosecute them. Why is the JIT playing its card so close to the chest? Is that a, a Dutch system thing or is that a JIT thing? Well, we don't know um, because on Wednesday this was a press conference. This was an announcement. They're now sending the subpoenas. And so that information should be in the subpoenas. It's, I think it's a prudence thing, kind of like you don't, you know, that's, that's, the, inform that's the communication between the authorities and the suspect. So it, it'll depend on how much detail will be in the subpoena. And once they have that subpoena, now they've notified, then they're entitled to certain rights um, of, under, of knowing what is in the dossier, is how we call it. Um, and then comes, of course, the legal battle between how much access do they have. They have, they have a fair amount of rights, uh, but this is another reason why they probably, it's in their own interest to take a Dutch criminal lawyer so that that person knows um, what to complain about if uh, if fair rights uh, would be compromised. But us, sorry, us as media, would the subpoena be public for other people, like sometimes in international uh, courts? I don't think that the Dutch authorities just publish that necessarily. But I don't know exactly how they're going to proceed. Yeah, well, my experience in Dutch court cases is while the subpoena or the dagvaarding isn't public, sometimes you can go to the court on the day of the trial and read it. The the principle is, is that they'll um, present the evidence in trial. Obviously, the defense gets time in advance to prepare its case and can then also request for a reasonable time to uh, after the evidence presented to present its own case. So I think what we're now seeing is Wednesday was the announcement to the public and to the suspects, this is when we're going to start. Um, and that would that allows now the defense to also um, take notice of uh, and, and, and yeah understand the dossier to a larger extent than necessarily we do. Can I ask you about the evidence? Because um, <clears throat> it seems that a lot of the evidence has been uh, available to the public for, for quite some time. You've got the open source investigators, Bellingcat, who've been doing a huge amount of work and keeping on putting the stuff out there, uh, saying they've tracked where various people were at various times and they've put lots of different names out of different different suspects. So is it the same evidence? Is it different evidence that, that the Dutch authorities have? I mean, how, do we know? Are they the same things? 
we don't know. So we're going to have to wait and see until uh, next year or, or maybe even later. Uh, it's likely, what, what, how I understand it is that uh, uh, whatever Bellingcat did, they shared with the prosecution, but the prosecution is not telling what really it thinks of these things. So it, it remains to be seen. What we've seen with Bellingcat is that they publish evidence, for instance, that the book came from Russia, that its path, they mapped its path to the Ukraine, then they named potential suspects months or up to a year before the JIT kind of came with the same conclusions. Um, why does it take so much longer for the JIT to reach the same conclusions? Can you explain the kind of discrepancy between getting it court ready or prosecution ready and what Bellingcat does? Yeah, so what Bellingcat does, and they seem to be uh, right on the mark, because JIT has not presented anything that is contrary to the Bellingcat's findings. So it's, it's really impressive, because obviously the JIT has a lot more uh, abilities to gather evidence than, than Bellingcat, who does it only solely on open source uh, and analysis. So they um, have a lot of information, is what they're gathering, but what the prosecution needs to do is really can only present what it is convinced that it can actually really prove up to a high standard that criminal law requires in a court of law, which also includes that they have to consider alternative scenarios. And of course, journalists and Bellingcats, that is not necessarily their task. Their task often is to, to see what is a very likely scenario. But the prosecution needs to go in, is it really reasonable to, to think that this is the only scenario? I was wondering also about international versus non-international armed conflicts. And I know this is something that um, uh, lawyers like to get into. What, what's important about that distinction? What the prosecution is choosing to say there is no combatant privilege. At least that's how I understand it. But what they're saying is uh, because these individuals that are now indicted, they were not involved, or I don't know the evidence, huh, but these are people that... Um, uh, were involved in the transport, in organizing the transport of the book missile into the territory. So this takes place in advance of that decision, that core decision um, at the moment when you have certain intel and when they say, let's shoot. And so at that moment, it, that's the moment where you only can give that order if you've distinguished, if you know that that target, to a reasonable extent, that that target is a military target. But these people that they're now indicting, they've been involved in getting the book there. So this is before that decision even takes place. They've also announced that they're going after people even higher up that in that, in that chain of command of getting the book missile there. So what I hear then is what they're saying is that they're not focusing on that decision of distinguishing between military or civilian target, but entirely by having a book missile, such a lethal force, lethal weapon there, then that the Russians actually bring it there because that it belonged to the 53rd Brigade, so the Russian army. So for me then, I think what they're saying is, yes, it is an armed conflict, but not one in which Russia would have, or these people would have combatant privilege. The Dutch criminal case now is one of just several dealing with MH17, and a lot of other cases are being mounted. Where do you see kind of the biggest chance of success in a way, and, and what would success then look like? Is a, is a Dutch case, if they mount it and people get convicted in absentia and the Russians can say, oh, but it's in absentia and we didn't get to present our case, you know, is that then success? 
or is success uh, we're doing an arbitration and Russia pays damages? What can people expect? Well, these, these, these aspects, I think, run parallel. So, and success is a difficult one. Like, obviously, uh, what is success? What is justice? And, and, and you, you guys talk about this a whole lot. You know, what, what's, how, so I think the, the victims, the, 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 the victims' relatives, they, I think they're pretty, overall, they're pretty realistic, that they don't necessarily expect that or feel, therefore, that justice would only be if, you know, these individuals would actually serve sentence, including whomever. So I think they're quite realistic that it's going to be hard to actually detain these people. Um, I think, so first of all, uh, legally speaking, there's a number of possibilities when we talk about criminal prosecution. They're trying now with with these people that have organized the transport. So the sort of the larger and what they're putting it is they have all worked together. They have prepared this and planned this and they're all uh, co-perpetrators. Um, there's also, they're still going after people that would have been present at the decision of launching the book missile. So maybe we'll see even more indictments coming out later on. And there can be the state responsibility. So the Netherlands and, and Australia last year announced that they wanted to, uh, that they hold Russia accountable for not, for its involvement and uh, in bringing down um, MH17, as well as for not investigating effectively, for not cooperating, for not, um, well, prosecuting if you're not extraditing, and so forth. So these are two different trajectories, but they can, they can help each other in a way. Why is it that you've become such an expert in this area? Why is Marika Dahoun all over every Dutch airwaves discussing this? I don't know, because people keep on calling me and I try to, I try to think about this. So... Uh, when, just after this happened, I'm Dutch, I'm a Dutch national, and, and when this happened, we all felt affected. We all felt it's it's a horrible situation, and I think, with thinking about it, why is it that we care so much? And I think, I think it's probably because we all get on planes all the time, and we kind of feel that this could have been us easily. And we also know, at least in my research into this, I also know that it really, there is quite a chance and I don't want to you know get any, anyone to be afraid flying planes I have to get on a plane in a few hours but um, the, 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 you know the fact that Ukraine didn't close its airspace and the fact that uh, Malaysia Airlines but also KLM because they were code sharing they didn't do proper research into these risks and so I think that's that's part of the rationale I was asked uh, by members of parliament to uh, do research uh, with my team, mm -hmm. with the Public International Law and Policy Group, PILPG, in order for members of parliament then to know whether they were asking the right questions to government in their controlling role. And this kind of got out of hand. So <laughs> later on, uh, so, so we wrote uh, a, a report and then later on we were invited uh, to contribute to a parliament a hearing uh, where I testified. And so we delved into it and it, it was really interesting because like legally speaking, you know, we're talking about international criminal law, international humanitarian law, public international law, Dutch criminal law, human rights law. They're all in a fair. It's complicated. We haven't even talked about, you know, maybe immunities uh, as take place. And there's all these really complicated legal questions that I just got intrigued by. And I, yeah, and it continues. And so, so what do you do when in your normal kind of day-to-day -day job when you're not doing MH17? What are some of the other stuff that you, you're doing? Or is it all, well, I guess this week was all MH17 all the time. 
Not even actually. I was um, uh, I was at the International Criminal Court on uh, Monday, where we were talking about preservation of evidence, and um, uh, we wrote also a book uh, a few years ago on uh, documenting human rights violations. Um, so these were like for civil society, uh, hands-on uh, guidelines on how to do that. But that is also not my core research. So uh, these are projects that I do with Public International Law and Policy Group that I do with my students at the Vrije Universiteit. But my own research is on um, the way that international criminal law or the way that the international criminal justice field is constructed uh, by its actors and the way that norms develop. So I, I try to take a more social legal approach. I've also background in political science as well as law. And what I'm really interested in, in is um, when we look at conflicts, in what way is the international legal order then used and developed in the last decennia um, in a different way than before? How has this field emerged, but how also it is now responding to, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not that easy. And there's all sorts of problems, namely the expectation game. When you set up idealistically the International Criminal Court from now on ending impunity and we will never, you know, have all this, these horrors again in the future, world peace. Um, obviously, that's impossible. And so now um, there is a lot of backlash in the last couple of years where also, for instance, African states have said, well, wait a minute, the way that you're actually able to uh, fulfill your mandate in a national criminal court, we don't really appreciate that very much. And so then the ICC is kind of like, oh, right, so we need to prosecute others as well, but we can't because, you know, powerful states are committing a, a bunch of crimes, they're not party to the ICC. So what happens then? How does that, I'm interested in how that organization, how that institution, the ICC is responding to it, and how state parties are responding to that as well. I can feel another podcast coming on, can't you, Stephanie? I... Totally, especially right, right before the next ASP, I think. Exactly, we need to do it, do it. Do another one. Um, we always like to ask uh, three questions of our guests, um, so, but in the context of what we've been talking about, so in the context of uh, MH17, uh, we'd like to ask you what's one thing that uh, when you're talking about it that nobody ever gets, nobody actually asks you that they should ask you? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um... I think, I, so we had a conference recently at the Vrije Universiteit, um, organized by Joris van Wijk and Barbora Hola, and there was a bright student that stood up and asked the panel, why did you get into this? Why do you do it? Why don't you spend your time on something else then? And we were all sort of like little silent in the room, like thinking, that is actually such a good question. And so maybe that question. <laughs> and so if, do you want me to answer it as well? Sure. I came into this really uh, passionate about international criminal law. I came from this from thinking conflict is horrible and how great, you know, if you can use the international legal order to do something about that. I still have that, but kind of regained it because then I got into it and I delved into it. And then, you, then I became a real crit uh, because you realize like all the difficulties and all the injustices that also lie on, underlie all the choices and the bias and the politics behind it and the geopolitics behind it. And, and so I became kind of like, but this is impossible. And why are they raising all these expectations? And there's all these negative consequences to it. And I, and then I got into a third phase, my third phase where kind of these two to, to perspective blended together. And now I'm kind of in the phase where I'm thinking, yes, it is 
very difficult and very hard, but it is so very important. And let's try and use our critical abilities to um, think about how it is possible and what is possible and how we communicate about what is possible and what is not possible better. So that's where I then still hold my passion. Well, the second question we'd like to ask is, what's the one thing that everybody gets wrong about what you do? So you're at a cocktail party and you tell to tell somebody I'm a public international lawyer. What do they think you do? What do they get wrong about it? Well, now that I'm uh, in the media quite a bit, people think that I'm some sort of a quasi-journalist and people don't realize that there's like serious research that underlies all this. And that is, I am a scholar as uh, you know, many other scholars. And uh, in order to say anything, particularly on these really complex issues, you know, the, the, the core of our work then is to sit down in your chair and to read and to think. And it's rather boring in that sense. So it's not that glamorous, as people may say. It's hard work. Well, to start with, I think she was dissing journalists, but I agree. I mean, it's, uh, I really understand, you know, you have to sit and do a lot of, lot of work. No, but I mean that people don't understand uh, that it's not just about having that knowledge, that the knowledge also needs to be acquired. And so it's not just that moment that they see me on TV or in the newspaper. We always ask also, is there something you've read or seen recently that you'd like to recommend to the audience? Well, I'm actually reading this really hilarious book. It's called um, The Rosie Project. And it is about a man that uh, is uh, has Asperger's, uh, but it, that's not really discussed in it. And he meets a woman and they fall in love. And it's just hilarious. And I actually just am like, sh- like laughing out loud and crying over it. So absolute recommendation. Sounds like a good alternative to working on MH17, to have some of it makes you laugh out loud. Absolutely. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time, Marika. Enjoy. Get on your plane. Go and forget all about this. Yes. Thank you so very much for this conversation. Okay. Bye. Bye. So that's it for today's Asymmetrical Haircuts. That's me, Jana Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. We want to say thanks to our editorial intern, Hannah van der Werf. And also thanks to audionautics.com for the music. And of course, our hosts, Humanity Hub here in The Hague. Which is a great place for co-working people in the peace and justice world. If you hear some sound here from coffee machines and stairs, those are our co-workers busy uh, making the world a better place. So let us know whether you like this podcast, give us a rating wherever you've managed to find it or look us up on the website asymmetricalhaircuts.com. I never know how to spell it, so you need to check that out for yourself. Double M. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.